Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, where you're at. My name is Brendan McNamara, and this is Totally Classic. I am joined, as always, in these leaps, bounds, and dances into third rail topics by, I was going to say the one and the only, but there have to be other people by your name, but you're the only you there is, um, so you can go ahead and say your name now. <laughs> yeah, and Mr. Rogers says that's a wonderful thing to be. Um, I am Andy Swindler. Do you, actually, so today's topic is about uh, intersectionality and the way I, uh, this is a, this is a, a, my selection topic. So the question is, is intersectionality useful? Uh, there's plenty of things to define in here. Um, but I did want to speak to, because I rarely speak to this because I find um, the entire realm of like, quote unquote, experts say, uh, as at least for myself and many people I know, um, that as soon as an article, let's say in the paper says something like, well, experts say, or according to experts, blah, 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 or blah, 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 experts say, um, means immediate dismissal. That is not a legitimate thing. That's not a, a, a useful metric. But I think today might have at least some glancing uh, elements uh, that would relate to that. And so I'm just saying that with all appropriate like preamble that yes, I'm not saying that anyone's expertise, training or experience makes them immediately or impeccably uh, more able to levy uh, useful information. And I think that's in general a false apprehension that many human beings have. But setting that aside, not only is it wonderful to be you, but what about your experience or even like in the realm, I know this is this is reductive in the realms of like job titles would make you a good person for me to talk about intersectionality too, or is this a terrible topic and I should never have brought it up. Um, Those are your only options. The, the first credentialing I think that's come up in our show. Uh, yeah. I wanted to experiment with that. Like let's, I wanted to experiment this, this time with like a, a little bit, something feels like an open, an opening. Hey, you're listening to this show. Check it out. I think credentialing is anti-intersectional, so I'm going to start there. Oh, perfect. Good. I'm glad it is, man. If it's something, it, I'm, I'm. If that, if it had that as a tenant, then I would be leaping on board. Well, I say that somewhat cheekily, but I think so. So I don't know. My, one of my current titles is chief empathy officer. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it. Is yeah. You know, born into or out of or both uh, of empathy is the idea of of actually seeing an individual for who they are as you introduced me yeah yeah in that you know i've been kicking around this phrase for a few years like the ultimate diversity is eight billion sovereign souls yeah and yeah they're all, they're all totally unique right that's like impossibly unique like we can't possibly i don't think one a person can actually conceive of eight billion different stories and yet there are Right? Mm -hmm. You compare two siblings that grew up in relatively similar, you know, households, you compare two people, whatever, who grew up in similar places, and they're going to have totally different stories, totally different reactions, totally different personalities. And so, in a way, I think it's it's been, I mean, it's always valuable, kind of batting these things around with you. And I, I think there might, we might have a similar kind of struggle with, on the one hand, holding this beautiful uniqueness of, of people on the one hand and then also 
trying to, I think a lot of our discussions are trying to pick apart the, the value or the potential harm of a lot of social sciences, which inevitably categorize everything. Yes, yeah. It's just part and parcel you know, to trying to develop a science, at least the way we tend to do it. Um, you know, it's it's like that. I don't know. I don't know how high we were in college when we said war is about numbers. So you can subdivide that shit. <laughs> it's true, though, man. It's so true. And, and we slice things up and we categorize people and we group them. And I sense that's a lot of what you're sort of pushing against in this particular conversation, or, or at least questioning really deeply uh, and interrogating is like, well, well, why? Like, why? Why is it useful to talk about these categories? Um, you know, I have gone pretty far down the path of, of thinking, well, these categories tend to help me uh, understand how somebody's identity may intersect with the power structures, uh, mm -hmm. may interact, intersect and interact with the power structures uh, of our society. Um, and that's, I think, something we're both constantly questioning, um, but I see you also interrogating as well as where like the data like show me the real show me the data like i don't like you're not settling for anecdotal data that that there are power structures or that it or that a particular categorization is actually even mostly true let alone i mean none of these are 100 percent true for a group of people sure yeah 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 well and that and then it's some of that is a that's how i think and then b that's also like looking forward to be like oh, okay when could this get problematic I mean, uh, and again, I this is not even really something I've been deeply thinking about in its application until this pandemic, until uh, like in high school and college, and then even just like randomly, if I was interested in a topic, I would go just uh, have some autodidactic tendencies. But definitely during the pandemic, there was a lot of stuff being thrown at us. And I was like, not all of it made sense. And I was like, I don't want to listen to people talking about this stuff anymore. Show me the stuff that you guys are looking at. And, your anal and I'm going to go analyze it myself, because your analysis seems whack. So let me go look, let me go see if what you're, and how do we figure out which experts are expert, right? Other than our own, their own assessment. And then in, in looking at, for example, like COVID related uh, science, right? You could easily discover that, oh, like, what was it like 80, 89 or 90, something like that percent uh, of people being like hospitalized for COVID early on were um, obese. So you're like, oh, like being obese was like a, like, a significant chunk. I mean, it's almost monkey. It's almost monkey poxy, and funnily enough, right? Um, we were like, well, pretty much almost everybody, but they weren't. They didn't want to talk about that because it's stigmatizing. And I was like, oh wait, that's weird. So there's an identity thing that's starting to interfere with just explaining things. And then I was also like, well, but at the same time, the stigma danger points to this danger, right? Which is like, okay almost all people who are being severely harmed by this disease we're locking society down are in this particular condition, which is a fact, which is a multi-hue, like why are people obese? There's no one answer. It's not like, well, it's genetic. Sometimes, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you don't want to then start looking at all fat people and being like, look at those COVID spreaders. They're the ones killing us all. They're the one, you know what I mean? So it doesn't become an absolute identity. All we're talking about is, is statistical, um, increased statistical chances or whatever. So we're actually talking about something that is, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's an important little Lego piece, but I think there is a tendency in human mind or the social, the, like social family to take the Lego piece and make it like a whole house and be like, well, that's the house then. And then, but then the problem is then they put the house down at the bottom of, of a pyramid of things that they start building. 
So then they start building on that as though it's a house. And I think that's that's definitely where I get into the like, hold on a second, wait a minute, we gotta, we gotta, let's start being real clear with our language. <laughs> so wait, yeah. wait, do you also, co I also wanted to know, somebody asked me this question. So this is actually the first like uh, question for our podcast. They were like, is he a coach? We've heard him mention coaching a couple of times. And I was like, well, I know Andy has done some like uh, quite a bit of like purpose-based coaching sort of in, especially in the corporate world, even more so than the personal, but probably both. And then I know you've actually sort of sat under coaching in many other circumstances, but are you also like a, like a coach in the uh, like DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion space, which would kind of be adjacent or kind of semi-incorporated Venn diagram-ish with intersectionality? Does that put you, does that, I ask you that because that would ramp up your expertise level for people tuning in. Oh yeah. Um, uh, in a sense, yes. Um, hmm. Yes. So I have, I have a certification. I have a few certifications. Um, coaching specifically uh, from the True Purpose Institute, both yeah. for one-on-one -on -one and small group coaching. And then I also have a certification in uh, True Purpose Consulting, as well as a few other categories. Um, and I... I mean, DEI is such a young industry. There, there aren't a ton of credentialed programs. There are a few. Yeah. I did take a two-day intensive a few months ago with a, a yeah. local Chicago consultancy called Ethos uh, that I really, really respect. Um, mm. And I, I just, I think there's a lot of compatibility with with how we see it, which is a lot of about empathy and belonging and, and yeah. just slow down enough, you know, to see yeah. each other and look look at these challenges um, with really sober eyes and, and as well as we can. Um, so I haven't done a lot of coaching in the last three years as I've turned my attention to building Feel Real, this network of space holders. Mm. And certainly a lot of space holders are coaches and that that can be a pretty- Sure, cool yeah. Player. But it's, I don't know, it's almost like not the main one. Um, okay. I, know, I feel like space holding is kind of adjacent to coaching. Yeah, so I haven't I haven't done a ton of coaching formally in the last three years. Yeah, uh, it is. It's an interesting question though, because I, you know, pre-pandemic, I I designed uh, like a workshop around allyship, mm -hmm. and you know, kind of combined some of the things I had learned. You know, because the coaching is a cool combination of you know some great great grandchild of of uh, like union psychology and mm -hmm. inner parts work and uh, just 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 kind of untangling a lot of our programming and, and our patterns so that we can actually open up a channel to something we might call divine wisdom. We tend to call it trusted source. You might, I think you could call it um, God or what, is there another term you typically use for God? Um, no, but what you're talking about, I don't even know what I'd refer to that as. I'd have to be, I'd probably have to come in and actually be part of the training. And then I would, and then I'd be able to tell you what, what my version of what you're talking about would be. Cool. But, this, but you've had, again, you've been in more training sessions and I know many, in many ways throughout this program, this will probably continue. I'm vicariously attending these sessions every time I get to talk to you about these things. Cause I yeah. ask all, all the questions. I ask you all the questions I would ask if I was ever in the training session of, 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 of these various and sundry sorts of the, of the subjects that I'm bringing up anyway. Yeah. And I, and I never want to assume anybody really of any religion or spiritual path feels the same way about God. Um, so I, I always look, love learning about that from you, both your own personal 
relationship and interpretation as well as Christianity at large. Yeah, yeah. That that could even be its own generalization. <laughs> yes, I, yes. Of the two of us, I, I probably yes, I have more uh, expertise credentials in the with from within the Christian Church. Um, but it's a, and this may or may not be relationship your relationship with God, which is interesting. Like, but it's essentially like some entity, some non human entity that you feel you can can um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know why it's not coming up uh convene with that's not mm -hmm. um that you can you know have a dialogue with that's mm -hmm. too directional that you can ask questions and get some answers you know just Ooh, a little i have a very interesting this is already totally obviously like we're deep in the weeds already but i have a question about that um does the in this case, this you know, it sounds a lot like, it reminds me of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? The whole idea of the quote unquote God of your own understanding, which need not be an actual God itself. Like, so for example, in that, like as people are kind of like identifying, whether they have to say it out loud or not, I'm assuming they don't, but you're like, everyone kind of kind of define for yourself what that thing would be. Yep. Are you, can it be defined as something that does or does, does it ever matter whether that thing does or does not exist? You know what I'm saying? So like, for example, you could be like, I talk to a godlike version of myself who is kind of an invention in my own mind, but provides, my, provides me with an excellent sounding board for me to be able to sort of in some ways speak to the to other elements of myself that I might have otherwise ignored. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the criteria, so as a coach, I can't tell somebody whether their trusted source is legitimate but I can say the criteria for it to be legitimate or that you believe it exists. That's literally the first one. Oh, okay. Oh, that is the answer. Okay. That you believe you can talk with it and yeah. that you, it knows your purpose and yeah. that, you, that you believe or trust that it can tell you and will tell you your purpose. Those yeah. The... Oh, okay. And then wait, is there, so there isn't this, okay. I was like, wait, I thought the first question might've answered it. Maybe it doesn't because existing. Okay. I was like, yeah, so that checks part of the box. Um, do you also have to believe that it's something that is separate from you? No, there's no. three categories okay. of trust forces. Um, okay, got you. Internal, yeah, uh, personal, and universal. So internal would very much, and these categories don't matter that much. They just help sure the more analytical mind kind of make sense of the groupings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the internal one often would be maybe a soul or even a higher self could theoretically be a sort of an internal trusted source. Yeah. Intuition. I mm -hmm. mean, if you really want to leave the spiritual realm and just, just talk about words yeah. like really, I think what this is. Um, and then personal would be outside of you, but still kind of unique to you. So often that might be mm -hmm. a, dead, a dead relative, like some kind of spirit. Oh, okay. Got you. Commune with, that's the word I was looking for there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then universal is going to be a, a trusted source that knows everybody's purpose. And that's typically mm. like God. Gotcha. Gaia or the universe or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. That's very helpful. Um, do you, have you ever been paid in either barter or capitalist funds for anything related to intersectionality? Um, anti-racism, DEI, uh, have you ever been? Yeah. Yes, I okay. was actually re recently 
I mean, that's part of what we're trying to do with Feel Real is actually elevate the the spaceholder economy and the way we define space holding, there's an essential component of it that is at least culturally aware. That's probably yeah. the most neutral kind of way to define <laughs> it. Yeah. And our bias is, yeah, more DEI kind of social justice Uh And yeah, I was, I was recently part of a very, very cool facilitation here um, for a group outside of Chicago. Um, and it was a bunch of African drummers who there are, they're performers, um, mm. but they have Cool idea to bring in what's neat is like each of them are from a different part of africa so oh yeah totally different rhythms yeah totally yeah rhythms. yeah it's, it's so cool like 26 years um funkadesi is their name and they it was so such a neat idea because it was like these and i'm a drummer right but i don't i'm not like i don't i don't like i don't even know if i can fake african drumming but um the the whole thing was designed around we've all got these different rhythms and so I thought it was a pretty cool approach to inclusion, the I part of DEI, which is like, yeah. how do we how do we blend our rhythms in, in a mm -hmm. way not just saying like, oh, this rhythm must dominate all other rhythms, but like yeah. how do we and so we literally broke into these different groups, each with a different drummer, and learned that rhythm. And then we all came back into a room together and merged those rhythms. I don't even know, there were probably 150 people. Uh, it was really fantastic. And then I was actually hired for the next part which was like 90 minutes of like holding space. Like, oh, okay, yeah. So to me, like that's that's the part of DEI I love, which is just how yeah. can we build a, con a small container where we can be vulnerable together and really share. Nice. So there's parts of it that I'm, I don't think I'm qualified at all to do, like, like the equity part. Like that's like analyzing somebody's governance, HR governance and hiring policies and things like that, where I'd be like, I'd be kind of guessing. I'd be like, there's oh, so, so many words. There's so many clauses. Yeah. This looks problematic. And I, you know, I can pick my way through a contract, but sure, sure. I just, yeah, that's when I hire people who are absolutely got you. Got you. So, you're, yeah, your experience lies more in the eye of the three letters there. Okay. But as long as you've been paid adjacent, you are a professional in this area. And I say that not only for, to remind you of this, I try to remind people of this all the time. That's all a professional is, just so you know anyone. If you've managed to get someone to pay you to do something, you're a professional. If you've not been paid to do that thing, you're an amateur. That's it. That's the standard. Certification is great. That's why people say, well, I'm certified in. People can be certified in something and not be a professional if they've been paid to do it. If they've been paid, you're already a professional. If you can get someone in your family to pay you $1 to tell them about something you're excited about, congratulations, you're a professional. This is to for all those people out there who tuned into this program, why would they? But they did, who are struggling with imposter syndrome. You're a professional, congratulations. What's we it will. take to become a professional actor? Get paid, even we in should. barter, even in deferred payment. We should put a certificate on the Tumblr. We should. Did, have you been paid? It's an honor system. And once you've been paid, you can print it out. You can fill in. I am now a professional blank. You can put it sure. up on your wall. Totally classic. Professional. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, I'm Brendan McNamara, a non-professional uh, DEI um, expert uh, speaking today to professional uh, DEI expert, um, Andy Swindler. And if you can see the video, you'll be able to see that his face uh, is doing his best to receive that because that is not how he would classify himself. Um, but no, I wanted that was all what all that uh, sidelong uh, stuff was for. 
uh, for people who find that sort of thing uh, informative or interesting. And also to know too, that when we examine issues like this, as we have in a multitude of occasions, um, these things are not just, uh, almost nothing we're talking about is purely theoretical. And it's just like, oh, what's fine when you're talking about the theory. Uh, these things intersect our lives um, and other people's real lives uh, in a myriad of ways. Um, and I think that's an important thing for anyone having these conversations with other people to remember. Uh, and it's something that I think we try to remember as well, that uh, these all this this all has to do with real stuff and real people. This is, uh, and theory is wildly important, um, but uh, the theory is not very important at all if it doesn't intersect uh, with real people's lives. So shout out real people. All right, on to the outline. Dun, dun. Um, is intersectionality useful? You might have been like, dude, we're 15 minutes in. You've told me a bunch of things that are somewhat interesting. Um, what is intersectionality? I can somewhat define it now that we've actually had a, plent a plentitude of conversations about it. Um, but how would you define it, especially in the way you first encountered it? Mm. And then we can even backtrack from there of like what it maybe what it is. That's why I say what is it generally as opposed to what is it, what is it specifically, which I think is actually a separate, almost a separate conversation. I think I first encountered it, um, you know, early on. I mean, this was very, very. I think the I think the pandemic had started, although maybe maybe I was talking about this slightly before lockdown. Um, but it was certainly before George Floyd and within the feel real ecosystem, there was a oh yeah husband and wife actually, uh, and she is a DEI expert and he's, he's a longtime activist. Um, and for what it's worth, he's a white man, she's a black woman. And they, they wanted to like ho hold space for a discussion around it. They called it intersectionality. Mm. And I don't know, that might've actually been the first time I'd heard that word. Um, and in fact, the, the Vox article that we were just looking at together yeah, the intersectionality wars like that was the reading assignment, so to speak, for for that group. Uh, oh, K cool! Um, and there were three kind of three sessions about about that. Um, and then, interestingly, the the wife uh, rolled off because she, I don't know her her reaction, as I recall, was just like you know she does get paid to do this all all day long. <laughs> it's a lot of emotional labor, um, particularly with a lot of the resistance she faces around it. And she was like, I don't need to do this on my off time. <laughs> so she knew what she was committed to. And then and then and then it actually evolved into a BIPOC space within the field rail ecosystem because mm. that, that that was something she was passionate about hosting. So that was really, I thought, a beautiful evolution. And then I ended up co-hosting the intersectionality space. So I kind of helped oh, like, okay. over and lead that on. Um, lead that on, lead that. And I I don't know, like I don't. I think part of the idea we had with exploring intersectionality was was to like take a different identity, you know, mm -hmm. like so I think and, and like we had somebody on who was almost like kind of like you, like just a hardcore researcher, just like, oh, my God, like she would just voluminous, you know, she would just and like yeah. 30 references of things to look at, you know, for the next session, which was yeah. to me kind of overwhelming because that's not my style. I mean, maybe I'd, re I'd watch one of the YouTube videos or something. Um, but I love the discussion. I mean, that's, I love social learning. So I thought yeah. it, was, it wasn't like a requirement. It was just, here's a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of intriguing to look, to kind of take, take it topically and be like, okay, we're going to talk about race 
for a few sessions that were kind of talking about gender, you know, and it was, and I know mm-hmm. out the intersectionality wheel, like kind of moving around the wheel in that yeah. way. Yeah, spoke to spoke. And so in a way, like that's kind of intersectional, but it's it's also deconstructing intersectional because <laughs> we're really just trying to look at one thing at each time. And I don't know yeah. that you're doing a great job of actually being intersectional intersectional about it, which would which yeah. leads me to try to define it, uh, which is <laughs> yeah. You know, to, and especially the way Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term, you know, 30 years ago, it was very specifically around the law and, and you know, does the law look at um, uh, somebody's situation uh, in, in, in the case, you know, one of the cases I think was with a, an auto company and, and sort of some black women who are being treated a certain way. Uh, and the, the question she was raising was, well, is the law even capable of of looking at the unique, um, I don't know, almost double oppression? I don't think that's the word she used, but like yeah, of yeah. a black woman versus sort of just looking at somebody being black or just somebody being a woman, just race or just gender, you know? And, I, and she was arguing, mm-hmm. like, and then and then the I, I grabbed some of these quotes. Like it was fascinating, like how. Um, well, this is not a direct quote. Well, this is from that Vox article. Basically, the law seemed to forget that Black women are both Black and female and thus subject to discrimination on the basis of both race, gender, and often a combination of the two. Oh, this was it. <laughs> then the court reacted in saying, um, in 1976, ruled against the plaintiffs writing in that writing in part that Black women, quote, uh, could not be considered a separate protected class within the law, or else it would risk opening a Pandora's box of minorities who would demand to be heard in the law. So mm-hmm. that, that to me is fascinating, like the, how the court kind yeah. of And I'm not, like, to me, that just feels kind of lazy, uh, you know, in, <laughs> in the spirit of what we're about. Like, to yeah. me, like, the kind of essence of intersectionality is very much what we're about. Like, let's look at the complexity. Let's not be afraid of like actually looking at all yeah. the, how everything intersects and crosses and bounces off each other and what things belong together and what things should kind of, can we abstract and extract? And particularly like, you know, when somebody has more than one, you know, let's say marginalized identity, how do those, I've been, I've been describing it lately using the word stack. Like how do those stack? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, or at, I've seen people have like literal formulas online where you can like enter in, you can like come up with your num- intersectional number or whatever. So it's almost like, what do they what do they add up to? Or what do they, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I even did that in this, I may reference this article that I wrote earlier in the year called Moving at the Speed of Care, you know, Privilege, privilege Energy and Action. And I think you read a draft of that before it was even published. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did that. I, you know, I attempted to yeah. kind of create my own score in a pretty simplified way based on my favorite, uh, I think you call them intersectionality wheels. This is the wheel of power and privilege from Sylvia Duckworth. Um, mm-hmm. I like it for a lot of reasons. It's one of the most comprehensive, it's colorful. She used, I think she's an illustrator. So I think she probably just hand wrote this, this kind of font. So it's got mm-hmm. almost like a playfulness about it. It doesn't look like some heavy, like academic model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a bad Excel uh, graph, yeah. But, but as I was going through that, a big part of what I'm learning about myself, um, 
I mean, for the most part, I mean, the, the point of that particular wheel is that is to look at power dynamics and look at, um, you know, which identities tend to have more power in our society, which are, are closer to like the nexus of power, and then which ones do we tend to not cater to? You know, and that could be something I think a really obvious category would be ability. Like my, my brother's an architect and years ago, he was saying, like the American Disabilities Act is a joke. Like, like nobody really pays attention to it. Nobody really builds for that. And nobody really polices it or, or um, oh, interesting. holds people accountable to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I shouldn't say nobody, but it's like, yeah, it's a problem. Uh, it's an honor system. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. you know, and that, that one, I mean, ableism is a category we probably don't, don't look at enough in, the, in, the, in all the isms, um, but it may made a, I don't know, my, I was going to say it almost feels maybe less charged than race or gender. But it almost shouldn't be, you know, it's like actually probably pretty ableist to even say it that way. So, um, but I'm pointing it out because it's a category that, I don't know, I guess has become more personal to me lately. You know, my my dad this year, um, it, he has a degenerative illness and he's he's wheelchair bound now. So all of a yep. sudden it's way more personal for me. And I think <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of the point of this stuff is when it doesn't affect us personally, particularly those of us who may have more privilege and power, uh, are, are we, are we, you know, honoring? Uh, let's go back to like the digit, the dignity and agency of the folks who who are more who are more marginalized and don't have access. And the other thing I've been exploring this year is is being an empath, um, being highly sensitive to energy, which is a very strange intersection with being a white man. <laughs> that's the kind of thing I think a lot of people expect uh, when they see me, you know, maybe walking down the street, um, and kind of what are the implications of that? And I found myself looking at this being like, well, where does that even belong in this wheel? And I think that's part of the problem. And I'm curious, like, I'll, I'll tip it, I'll volley it back to you in a second. Yeah. I wonder if that's part of your challenge with this is just that it's inevitably incomplete, right? Just because any any categorization, any thing that attempts to- Sure, yeah, yeah. Humanity is, is inevitably incomplete. And I eventually learned like, oh, well, empath is kind of like this research around highly sensitive person, HSP, and that's now now starting to be categorized as a kind of narrow atypicality, and so you know, so I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I guess I get to play in this. It, it actually even looks like Trivial Pursuit if the kids remember that. <laughs> yes, oh, it totally does. I'm yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I'm a, I'm this I'm the green wedge. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in that I'm in that slice of pie too. I'm key lime. Well, yeah, interesting. So. We, yeah, we ranged ahead. So let's rewind a teeny bit to that is kind of how I intersect, intersected with intersectionality as well, was kind of in the in the format of what you're speaking of. And I guess if I were to define it early on from what I saw, it it seemed to be a uh, almost a philosophy, but I guess you would call it a, a, a theory, a theory that there are multiple layers or multiple classifications of identity that apply to every single human being on earth. And uh, they uh, not only exist as separate categories you can pull apart and look at, like take them out of the pie and look at them separately, something like uh, sex or race. But once you put them back in the pie, that the, we, we get a better sense of the human person as a whole as we examine the multiple aspects of their, their uh, identity. And so the intersectional part is like, basically where multiple separate identity categories overlap or collide, where they, quote unquote, intersect. Um, that's sort of how I had it kind of explained to me. But it did contain some of the elements that are actually 
the, the I had the deepest questions about because the second element that I felt it was fundamental to it uh, in, in the way it was first presented to me or the way I first started interacting with it, probably in that same time, somewhere between 2017, 2019 zone is when I first started hearing about it. Um, although it, it entered the Oxford English Dictionary in that Fox article it mentioned in 2015. So it had already become common enough usage-wise to get to Oxford, which is a, a semantically conservative dictionary. Um, and again, came from an article, which we'll get back to in a moment. Uh, yeah, it was an article for like a law journal, as it looked like, um, or law review uh, in 1989. A, a drummer, another summer, get down, sound of the funky drummer. Um, and the second part of it was, yeah, it had to do with sort of, I guess I would say power and privilege, sort of privilege or marginalization or privilege and oppression. And that to me, I think was the, from the very get-go, I was like, wait a second. I don't understand the first, second part. I kind of get the first part. Like I'm already tentative on like the use of the first part, meaning like these are aspects of our identity that are in any way like truly germane. Eh, I was like, I could question that. We could talk about that for a long time, but not as long as the second part, which says certain identities have more inherent power. And it really seemed to be applied in the way that I first introduced it. Maybe it's different the way you came across it. It was very specifically talking about the United States of America. It was a U, like absolutely US centric uh, um, construct. And then I, I feel like fundamentally, because you'd have to rearrange it wildly if you took it to any other country. Yeah. I um, yeah. But then we, this, just this week, I just, I'm only on six pages in y'all. So this is my level, level of expertise of reading the, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, I don't know if she, is she a professor? Should I call her professor Kimberly Crenshaw? Um, professor Kimberly Crenshaw's. Highly credentialed. Yeah, she is highly credentialed. There might be a bunch of, a lot of letters. She has an alphabet soup at the end of her, end of her name. But when she originally wrote her article, it was specifically about only, this is interesting, uh, gender slash sex, which I think she uses both of those interchangeably uh, in the piece so far, um, that gender and sex mean the same thing, um, and race. And so, yeah, it was about having a case specifically where they were like, no, you can either prosecute this as a, uh, gender discrimination case, in which case you'll probably lose because you've been hiring women since this particular year, or you can do it a race-based case, in which case at this particular auto plant, the divergence, the um, the statistical difference was uh, negligible between like high level uh, employees who are black and high level. So they're like, well, we're not racist and we were sexist, but we're not sexist anymore. And so we don't really know, basically they can get out of it. because they're like, well, we don't know what the problem is because you had to consider those things separately in the law. And Crenshaw was like, well, but wait a second. They're basically, so yes, okay. They didn't violate those in total, but they still are very, like we have enough evidence in this case. They didn't have the evidence in the case. I don't even know if it was a winning case or not. They could have been a losing case. Black women might not have been discriminated. I don't know. I wasn't there, wasn't in the court, didn't read the court case. I just read her discussing it. And it, it seemed very salient and appropriate to me. What she was proposing was, well, no, as a, again, a cross section of these two elements, here's a group that they're specifically excluding. That And it's not solely because of their race and it's not solely because of their gender. And actually, this is the interesting part it invites, it might actually have nothing to do with either, therefore. And this is where it gets tricky and why she was like, well, we can't just, we can't just say it's not about either then since you've disproven the two separate categories, which is what the brain rationally would say. We're not discriminating against women. We're not discriminating against black people. So no, we're neither sexist or racist. But if they were discriminating against black women, then Let's go, what's, oh no, 
what's wait no something's going on and we have to figure out how to address this and she was saying but there are overlapping or intersectional elements going on here in which case black women can be a particular category of discrimination but they're saying in the law they have no that's not a, 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 that level of identity is not anything the law has even begun to approach. So in some ways, the Pandora's box thing is pretty savvy. It can either be lazy or, again, this is the spirit of conservatism saying, hold on a second. If we start breaking down, every, like, it'll get to the 8 billion. It's going to get to the 8 billion level where basically everyone is going to be like, you discriminated against me, and that's going to be illegal. And you're like laws for eight we need eight billion <laughs> right exactly so it's a, it's basically it's a when you don't hire me i can bring a lawsuit against you as as a brendan discrimination suit or as we begin to just say well they can only be categorical we begin to validate more and more categories as legitimate categories by which to separate people when race as we already know is like a tentative if we've already gotten into racial discrimination we're already like okay this is a problem and this is how we're dealing race referring to each other as separate races i i would say is already a problem it's not a good thing it's a, it's 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 a malnourished thing and we need these laws ultimately right in order to make sure that people aren't thinking that way and acting out of that wrong thing so if we begin to add more and more categories we're val we're actually strengthening the case that these things are relevant like your sex really has anything to do with your capacity to work in an executive position at an automotive plant for example so, yeah. I, I mean, in some ways, I was like, oh, I can see that what is modernist intersectionality is not remotely what Kimberly Crenshaw was proposing. So her coined term is at best, like, again, like a grandparent or whatever, although she does introduce in this article, I've already have a bunch of problems with it, her, her original thing. She introduces concepts of privilege and marginalization in there. So all the like there's a lot of the ingredients are already there, but who I don't know who took it. And that's the funny thing. This Vox article is really interesting that you've mentioned a couple of times. And um, I'll, maybe I'll try to remember to uh, share it on our Tumblr so you guys can click on it and read it. It's fascinating. But if there's no, to me, there's a missing link. I was like, how did it turn into, from what she said, into this like very broad, critical, kind of similar to critical theory, critical gender theory, critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. And, and Kimberly Crenshaw is literally like studied under some of the original uh, like law professors who who in, who sort of invented critical race theory as well? So that's that that is like a literal familial uh, lineage. They are they're explicitly connected. Um, that's not just like oh see they're all the same. No, these these folks are literally like know each other. How did it get into the realm of outside of what she spoke about it? And I and I don't know the answer to that. But well, but I they, give, they give one clue. Um, but first, I want to say yeah. I mean, I, I I think you and I are fairly aligned on this. Like uh, like. I, to me, I, I hope that most things like this, um, this body of work and others that are naming race yeah. are doing so because it's already a problem. <laughs> yes, you yeah, would hope so, yeah. I mean, and no, hope so, not hope so, sorry, yeah. <laughs> without naming something, without vis visibilizing it, without doing actual research, yeah. and, you know, unfortunately, I don't know that we have better ways to than social science to to sort of, you know, try to, like, build data sets around what's happening to groups of people um and i i am with you i i if i'm right in um perceiving a risk that that becomes the the new normal like all of a sudden yeah. we forget why we did it we forget we we were actually doing this to deconstruct the challenges and the problems yeah to stop making these things important 
yeah. that becomes the way we we categorize each other and that i yeah i think there is a risk of that becoming its own problem yeah that's the pandora's box i think it's not necessarily the getting people power because i think in order to assume it's about power you have to then assume that the person saying that is in agreement with you as to to me the part that i don't see yet which is power privilege marginalization that whole continuum which we'll get into more in a second but i was like I think because I think she had a similar response. She was like, see what they said? So that proves, and you're like, it doesn't prove anything. It proves from your point of view that if they thought like you, the only way they would say that is because of this. But they, you already know they don't think like you. So if they're thinking different, and again, I'm gonna, as an actor, I am a professional actor. <laughs> Me putting myself in other people's heads is like what I've done for most of my life since I was for 40 some odd years. So it's not super hard for me to go well wait a second though but they're not you they're a different person so they think different and if they thought if they don't believe in the realms of uh they don't believe in your presuppositions professor crenshaw that black people are uh marginalized or uh, have less power or that women have less power then they're saying this whole thing is a pandora's box because you're you're it's built on two presuppositions neither of which we agree with and that was that was eclipse it too. I have to say, in the very first document, uh, she capitalizes black. She doesn't capitalize white, and she continually refers to like white women as the standard for discrimination. But there's no proof of that. That would just be white women would be the standard statistically if they filed the most number of discrimination cases. That would be the only way in which they would be, and that would be like accurate and, and observable. But it would just be all, all women and any women. It just means there's no separate category for any race of women. It wouldn't be excluding black women. It would just be like, well, what if they're discriminating on you on the basis of your whiteness? They would have the same problem. They would need this intersectional lens. And so I say that just be like, A, she had a false presupposition or an undemonstrated one. Um, and then she, but intersectionality is still useful even with her false potentially false uh, presupposition because intersectionality would be a white woman would need it as well. If she was in a place where she was being discriminated against specifically as being a white person and a woman, then intersectionally, she would, she kind of needs the same outlet um, for defense. It wouldn't be unique to black people at all. It wouldn't be unique to black women. Yeah. I, I don't, I think if we're going to have an intersectional lens, part of the value of that is looking at, and and because part of it is kind of like I was saying about being an empath, there are a lot of invisible identities that are sure. marginalized. Yeah. Can carry, and, you know, I don't have, I don't carry many marginalized identities as, as I look at the wheel and, and that framework. Um, and so it's like, just at a personal level i'm like oh well it's, it is hard to go through the world being energy energetically sensitive and there's some extra care i have to take around that yeah and, and i i'm i believe just based on a lot of stories i and evidence i've seen that it would probably be even harder to be energetically <laughs> sensitive if somebody didn't have i in something i was writing recently i said i have a lot of energetic insulation and i believe that <laughs> yeah affords me that you know mm. i live alone and there's just a lot of reasons for that I don't have to I don't take public transportation very much you know there's just a lot of things I don't I don't actually I could avoid um the yeah. energy quite a bit frankly um or or do it maybe it's one of the reasons I was attracted to to interacting on zoom because I feel like it's a little oh sure <laughs> I'm, I'm in a safe cube and that's and let's let's sort of loop back around because that was really the main thing I was exploring that 
that article I wrote, which we can also throw on the Tumblr, um, mm -hmm. was was kind of an expansion of something I had learned uh, called spoon theory a few years back. Um, and that was somebody talking about because of all of their, um, I think, marginalized identities. And particularly, I think it was in the context of um, of a health condition. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this, like, like just having less energy and just yeah, having yeah tend to this health condition yeah and, but just by choosing to use a metaphor of spoons to say i have i have to explain it to a friend and say i have 10 spoons yeah. when i start the day and you know getting getting up and around and, and kind of just even getting ready to leave, leave the house as three spoons yeah and it helps you know just just be able to her friend quantify like oh my god like by that measure i have 100 spoons <laughs> and i only spend yeah spoons getting out of the house in the morning and you know um and then I, I don't know like i it's funny to me because i i think that's a really cool body of work and a really cool way to explain it and and yet i was just like i don't know i a lot of we're both really fascinated by words and the evolution of words and we were even just talking yeah. about the subconscious, subconscious and did people know what that meant 30 years ago but i'm just like well i think we could just call it energy <laughs> like i take less of <laughs> yes have a yeah. shared understanding of like what what energy is um so in 2019 i started just playing around with a cut the kind of blending and this was actually before probably before officially encountering the word intersectionality or maybe i had read it a little bit here and there um but hadn't dug in nearly as deep and i was just became really curious about that like oh is that a way to talk about this like mm -hmm. that, that it costs more pe some people more energy to move through the world and interact with the world than others and we might just say, well, of course that's true. <laughs> like that's yes, absolutely. The nature of things. And then could could that be quantified? Could that be reliably connected to power and privilege and marginalization? Um, and then I did want to quickly yeah. back, because I didn't weave this in, was they, they said this in the Vox article about when did intersectionality change? And yeah, what the one thing they pointed out was in the 2017 Women's March. And it was an event whose organizers noted how women's intersecting identities meant that they were, quote, impacted by a multitude of social justice and human rights issues. And feminism is wrought with all, all kinds of um, debates about it, how racist it, it is, because a lot of feminism through the 20th century was mostly white women building support and solidarity and, and policies for white women. At least that's the argument I see um, commonly presented. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and and I think the, the women's marches uh, kind of fall into that category. They tend to be organized and and led, and I think attended mostly by white women. Um, and anyway, Crenshaw's response to that at that moment in time was, "I've never written that. I've never said that. This is just not how I think about intersectionality." <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, maybe maybe just the nature of language, maybe just the worst game of telephone ever. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, but I do know it's also connected to something you're not very fond of CRT. And I and I don't think in this episode, we're going to unpack that very much because that's- it's No, 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 no. But, but it is interconnected for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they even say that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to at least mention that her work around intersectionality evolved from her being a CRT researcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too. Women's March, uh, 
in some ways, and her having that reaction is hilarious. Um, and then uh, in some ways it proves the, the uh, potentially limited response of those in the court case she was referencing of, this is the Pandora's box. It's open. So now we're already in the period. The Pandora's box is open, man. Like, and it's full on and it's already being incorporated into legislation. It's, it's in very short order. If the Women's March was kind of like a, a, a crowning moment of its like full arrival on the scene, it is on the lips and tongues of politicians. It is absolutely being incorporated as a, as a sort of presupposed fact in legislation. Um, even in the Art of Vox article, it presupposed it was like, well, no one disagrees with this. And it, but of course, who said no? Like, it was like, we've spoke to many conservatives and they don't disagree with this part. And it was like, well, we don't really know what they agreed and disagreed with. Because I agree with, already, I've already told you how I think it's useful. Like in the way Kim Kimberly Crenshaw originally spoke about it, I'm going to say in answer to the question, is it useful? I can see that being useful. So I would go ahead and say that yes, in that we do, yeah, full yes, two thumbs up. That is, if we agree, um, that that is useful for us to consider multiple layers of identity-related causes by which people could be theoretically um, discriminated against, and that's the, the fascinating thing. Because I think, in some ways, these are labels explicitly connected to harm, which is interesting. Like it's literally about preventing harm, and that's one of the things I think that is. Uh, it's sort of like the jet fuel for I think why intersectionality became like prevalent so fast because again it's rooted the same thing that you and I have talked about it's the sort of uh, I don't know what the common grace of God as probably I would refer to it or maybe it would uh, in four times past would be called there's man's better angels um, this thing was like oh we want to help oh this will be helpful but I think that was a presupposition. Again, I don't think people have asked this question, is it useful? I think people are just like, oh, this can be useful. Let's start using it. Again, that's the progressive mindset, right? Here's a new tool. Let's try this new tool out. It's very playful. It's lovely. You know what I mean? And I'm definitely more like, hold on. And once we play with it and I see it start stabbing people, I'm like, put that thing down. They're like, no, we're just not using it right yet. You know, I feel like that's the, the wrestle we're in. And the Women's March is fascinating too, because the Women's March was at least from people in my circles or adjacent my circles, I should say, actually, most, I had multiple friends that went to the women's march. Um, actually, one of the first places I ever saw intersectionality outside of just like internet was my friend Karen had a necklace that just literally gold, written in gold cursive, just sit intersectionality on it. And at the time I was like, I don't know if I want to get into this conversation right now. And so I didn't, I refrained. And I regret it to this day. Like it haunts me years later, not, not, not having good, <laughs> like uh, potentially contentious conversations haunt me and potentially people like me for decades, y'all, just so we know. So every time we hold our tongue, we're we're taking on emotional labor. <laughs> did, it, did it at least intersect with like gold and silver and- And my, yeah, and mining and my, yeah, exactly, mining practices. Um, but anyway, so yeah. Like a multi-metal, like- thing. A multi-metal, yeah, yeah. Here's all, here's my different, different identities. Well, it's just fascinating too. My friend Karen has actually done a bunch of collaborations and I actually wrote with Karen, with this woman, uh, my, my friend Nicole, who uh, has uh, was diagnosed in her teens with juvenile uh, rheumatoid arthritis, or maybe not rheumatoid, it's just juvenile arthritis. Um, and they didn't think she would survive much past her 20s. She's now in her 40s. Um, and she was the person who introduced me to the Spoonie theory. They hashtag things Spoonie all the time, dealing with autoimmune stuff. And I think that's a cool way to look at it too. Um, and I, I've often always referred, I've used the metaphor of batteries, battery life, like on your phone, um, and that your battery drains differently. But what's interesting to me, and maybe we can start getting at this, 
um, th that word, I think, is one of the big word buzzwords for me that makes me go, hold on a second. I don't know if I can use that word yet. Marginalized. So like, for example, someone who has an autoimmune condition, I think I, and this may be just my incorrect semantic understanding of the word, like an autoimmune person, I would never call marginalized because uh, to me, marginalization, I think I put in that realm of like social implications, meaning they have been marginalized. As, a, as, a, as though it's a thing that's happened to them from outside of themselves, where of course with an autoimmune disease, it's your body's fault. Like your body is literally attacking itself. So it's it's all on you. So you have, you which, but if it, if that uh, aspect semantic, of the semantic range is appropriate, I can start using marginalized, meaning people can be marginalized by virtue of their choices and or themselves. So an auto, like me as, a, as an unhealthy person with autoimmune condition, which does drain my battery very fast, um, no, it's it's that's me that's on me dude like I, i'm marginalized by virtue of my condition so i'm 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 lower on the on the power scale literally i have less stamina than a person who might who would be, have all the other characteristics of me <laughs> the, the me the multiverse me who doesn't have this has more energy than i do most likely um but that's not, there's nobody like on top of me or there's no oppressor in that scenario. Whereas I think I constantly think of marginalized as on the bottom of a hierarchy and there is an oppressor, like a healthy person would be my oppressor in that case. But again, maybe I'm just thinking of marginalized incorrectly. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I would say uh, it, it is, I mean, in the in the power and privilege wheel, it's basically like power in the middle and the marginalization on the outside. So, so you know, part of that is like, if we, you know, let's put it in the back in the dignity and agency framework. So, I think that is mostly speaking to agency mm -hmm. in terms in terms of power, right? So, our marginalized folks, uh, do they have access to change things? Do they have a voice? Um, and then, you know, in some cases, especially like with body uh, ability that might literally be like, can I even move through the world in a certain way? Yeah, uh, can I even get there to, can I get to the town meet town square meeting? Yeah. So, you know, right now my my best friend is staying with me. Um, you're like my best college friend. He's my best <laughs> friend, okay. It's cool, that's um, great. My, my daughters have like four best friends. I mean, I as a semantic conservative, you know what that does to me. It's a superlative, EST is a superlative. It's actually a sing, ugh, it's a singular category, fine, whatever, whatever. There's best, better, best assist. Yeah. Top five, top 10. Yeah. One, um, <laughs> one, at one point, my best friend called us brosifs. So we just didn't even have to, he just invented. Well, they, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That way you don't have to put any superlatives on it. It's too, it's too much burden. So my, my best friend is seven, two, seven foot, two tall. He's a full foot taller than me. I'm, you know, yeah. tall enough. And, I live in a pretty generous space, but the, there's three floors and the lower floor is really, I don't know, maybe it's a seven foot ceiling. I mean, he, he can actually stand maybe with an inch clearance, you know, yeah. so that's okay. It's... But, but I, in moving through the world with him, I'm noticing he has to duck through every doorway. Doors yeah. are like, I don't know how, what the standard is, but they're not even usually seven feet tall, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so to me, marginalization, you know, did a did a did an impressive power like make him seven foot too tall? Uh, no, much in the way that you're describing your condition. Yeah. Um, but then to me, it's that activates 
you know, somewhat agency, right? But then the dignity yeah. part. So I I hold that the the goal as a society is to uh, attempt to accommodate every condition as well as we possibly can, and to to just so that everybody has dignity and agency. Um, and that's a lofty goal. And especially when we do standardize things, you know, and this is in some yeah. ways because we've been able to provide, I don't know, maybe lots of housing uh, based on sort of standardization and in other ways, you know, what if, what if like the, the norm we used uh, wasn't really the right mold or yeah, or, it was, it was incorrect. Yeah. Or, or, or even if it's a majority mold, let's just, I don't know, the 80, 20 rule kind of comes up a lot. Maybe let's say, let's kind of arbitrarily say that 60% yes. of the middle is the majority. There's yeah. 20% who are marginalized or 20% in power just to kind of use a loose yeah frame. so yeah what if we design everything for the 60 percent? you could argue well hey the majority of people are still being accommodated and yeah. in all likelihood that would also probably include the, the people in power because they were the ones probably making a lot of choices about what what was made so maybe we could even say 80 percent are accommodated well what about those 20 percent so yeah even if we didn't cause their condition do we have a responsibility as a society to to attempt to uh, accommodate their condition or or to help them move through the world as easily as maybe the rest of us do. Yeah. To make it more personal, when you were talking, I'm I'm you know I know about your condition that it requires a lot of bathroom visits, right? <laughs> yes. You know, so for you, I appreciate that you're not trying to blame the world for your condition. That's what I hear. Cool. And I wonder if you know what would it be like on the one hand like an extreme example might be like what if all the bathrooms in the world were locked yeah which during the i gotta tell you in for two years of the pandemic that was the case i mean i was that it that was one of, that was probably the highest anxiety for me throughout the pandemic was the closing of public restrooms in almost every location so in that way i would say you were you were marginalized because by, yeah by the choices sure and i mean my god we talked for hours about how the pandemic actually marginalized folks. I don't know that we use that terminology, but that means- Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, but no, actively and probably, I would say most likely intentionally. Yeah. And and then for you, that's that's like a, a symptom of all of, of whatever, you know, for whatever reason people were, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it was because they didn't, they, they, they thought like people using the bathrooms would increase transmissions maybe or something. Yeah, yeah. All the bathrooms were locked. Yeah. I would say that decision- didn't take into account people, um, maybe anybody who needs to use the bathroom, which would include <laughs> I, I mean, literally, statistically, everybody, 100% of people need to use the restroom. <laughs> a few things we can be certain about, folks. And this yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> Every, everybody poops. It's like, yes, I, I have no problem saying, I yes, that you would be marginalized as somebody who not only maybe needs frequent visits, but it might be like a short fuse, right? Like you don't get yeah. a warning no um, and now on the other end of that extreme is like okay should we put like a porta potty on every block so that you <laughs> yeah you know so you're guaranteed access to a bathroom when you need it probably not like that's, that's yeah probably the solution so that's how I yeah think about it. that makes sense um when did oh next thing in the outline what carried it from a theory to is it an accepted theory for you do you or do you feel like it's a salient theory that you're applying, do you cease? To, have you ceased to think of it as a theory, or are you still kind of in a playful middle place of like, no, this, I'm going I'm to keep working this theory until such time that it no longer proves useful. Well, like like so many things uh, that 
bear fruit for me in our discussions. It's you helped me to unpack it even more than I had. Um, I don't think it's a theory that we all have different identities and that they they interact in different ways with our within ourselves and and when we interact with the world. And again, we could extract that to just saying, well, that's eight billion different ways of, of being. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it a viable theory within the law? I don't. I don't know. How to, I don't really know what's happened with it in the law, to to be honest. So that's. I don't. I don't either. Like, sure, it seemed like a good thing for her to point out. I hope somebody listened. <laughs> I hope something changed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what you know. We we heard the reaction of the courts, like ah, Pandora's box. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know enough about it really as its original legal theory. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know kind of what happened to it. Um, but is it, is it, you know, going back to what I said earlier, is it valuable right now to, to try to like analyze things to, to separate things enough to isolate things enough to analyze how that could work. And then mm -hmm. to try to pile those on top of each other in an intersectional way to say, yeah, well, how could it, how could these multiple identities, um, affect somebody in their life? You know, I think that's all useful. Um, again with the same caveat of like well hopefully none of us hold this these as like absolute truths about ourselves because they're implicitly implicitly limiting i think our our ultimate full human expression yeah and i think that's a huge harm that i, I know people cite from people who don't like this very concept in general where they're like it's making people identity obsessed individually um i mean listen the claims about this have stretched all the way to I think of like edgy claims, like uh, the everyone's trying to figure out the rise in young teenage girls, especially um, pre anywhere from pre-puberty through teenage girls uh, are um, citing, I guess, gender dysphoria, are, are struggling with gender dysphoria, whether te both temporary and seemingly lingering or whatever, however that can play out, a bunch of different ways. But the numbers have leaped to a radical degree and everyone's trying to kind of figure out that why multiple theories involved but one of the theories i do hear dominantly is as this intersectional concept has become more and more prevalent and germane especially in the marginalized and oppressor element so to me that's the that's the live wire element of the thing that we haven't fully addressed because i think we're talking about stuff that kind of does i think make a lot of sense or works or certainly makes common sense sense i think to most people and i want to address that first too so people can just be like yeah it's terrible tear it apart let's look at what's flipping useful here always right um, and it's unlikely that any theory that someone comes up with is just 100% trash. And I don't think intersectionality is 100% trash at all. Um, but then the concern is, as people begin to see themselves on a continuum of oppressor or marginalized, there is an explicit, especially in the religious aspects, the woke religious aspects, that one, if you kind of tabulate your score and find out that you are essentially, by virtue of your score, you're kind of in the oppressor class, which makes you less spiritually valuable in the spiritual paradigm of like who's who's most important, who's the most important caste who we have to raise up and protect the bra the bra yeah, the Brahmins, the enlightened ones. Um, you can, by virtue of a limited number of things, accrue more points and like become more marginalized or oppressed by making a decision such as that. Like if you were to come out as trans, you immediately gain a whole bunch of points like on the scale, you might gain like 17 points or whatever in a day. So as a way to net, and since young girls is the theory, since young girls are especially vulnerable to social dynamics and to social hierarchies, that 
if you can just make a decision like that, A, to obviously separate your identity from your peers and also like, who am I, right? In the teenage years, especially, you're like, who the hell am I? And you're going to try a bunch of things on too. And some of them are going to be right and some of them wrong, whatever. And, and people need that freedom to be able to have some exploration in that area. But if you're able to immediately advance in the social hierarchy, the intersectional hierarchy, by kind of coming out as something, coming out, coming out as gay, you could do it. You can immediately like, you could leap up a bunch of scores. You can get points overnight. And so in the game of, there's a gamification aspect or an inherent gamification within intersectionality of the oppressor element, which gets you away from not only just like being less spiritually uh, wonderful, being like a lower caste system, but actually being farther away from being a villain. Because I think that's where a lot of people take that element. It was like, if you're in power, and I don't feel like that's completely accurate in terms internally how the system is discussed, but like, if you are privileged, you also are a quote unquote oppressor class. Therefore, that you're closer to the, like you're the bad guy. Ultimately, like in the paradigm, in the in the narrative. But that's again, that's making it a a, a legal theory into something that you pull out in order to deal with discrimination cases, as a, pulling it out to a thing that you think about every day and all the time. That's part of the Pandora's box, I guess. And then the other one is like, is there? And this is my question, I guess, coming out of this: Is there? Does that even exist? Except in outside criticism, is there an element of? Like if you are sort of like lower on the power scale in within an inter pro-intersectional space, does your voice hold more weight? Like, are you considered a more legitimate source of input, opinion, et cetera, if you're lower on the power scale or, or into the marginalized territory? Or is that just an invention of people who don't like it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that can be true. Um, it occurs to me one quick loop back, you know, when I was talking about marginalization, I was, I was really speaking to, to you and to my friend. And yeah, your, I think really good question about like, is it is it an oppressive force? Or can I just can marginalization? My answer was like, well, I think people can be marginalized. It's not always just the cause. It's, it's just like, are we even as a society tending to that or caring about that? Um, and I think you're, it's a yes and because the, the original part is also true. Like if there is an oppressive force, then yes, um, on the other end of that are marginalized folks. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely, like there's a, a body of expertise, a li of lived experience. I think that's really quite important. And mm -hmm. sure, I have seen that lead to increased amounts of social power within certain environments. Yeah. Uh, I've seen that firsthand. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know. And I, I still believe that it, it, as, as many of those circles as I swim in, it can start to feel like the norm, but then I have to remind myself that I, I don't think it is. So I'm really curious about the research you just cited because yeah, I don't, that sounds like it's maybe, I guess, much, much bigger than, than I had, had known uh, that uh, what you're citing about, you know, girls and especially if that's, changing really rapidly in terms of a reasonable measurement over time. It, it's hard to imagine a scenario where somebody was really consciously doing that, where they were saying, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like claim this identity because I know it will give me power to look a certain way within a certain group of people. Um, eh, it's actually not that hard to imagine. I hope, however, that it's, it's more subconscious, if anything, that mm -hmm. it's, if it, you know, just to kind of riff on that that particular theory for a moment. Oh yeah, yeah. 
you know, or or the other option, I guess, is that that this is a, a more is a, is a very natural expression that's been repressed. That what we're seeing is you know some kind of liberatory uh, aspect where it's right like, yeah that's another dominant theory right is like they as something becomes normalized the people who always long to be this thing that people now accept are like finally feel like they're running out of the the shadows you know yeah yeah um so can more power be had uh more social power be had by by folks who are by mark by folks who carry marginalized identities in certain circumstances, yes. And I believe that to me is, is a corrective force because at large, those identities I think are still marginalized and, and not cared about or tended to in the world or actively um, oppressed or put upon by the law. But you know, another thing you've helped me look at is not just not just settling for like anecdotal evidence like like what's really happening with yeah how how like the harm i think that's something you and i are constantly coming back to and are both very concerned about is harm reduction yes but so let's accurately measure the harm i think with. that's huge right yeah because i think the thing we both agree on is if nothing else <laughs> like outcome anecdote or outcome is interesting it's it's smoke, right? It might be even a smoke signal, and it's and it's not unimportant, but it tells us nothing about causation. It it just tells us outcome. But the great thing about outcome, or like let's say for example, if you were, I'm not saying anyone did this, but let's say the whole idea, the whole system, like let's just pick one spoke, right? Um, the whole concept of uh, whoever was in privilege or marginalized, I'm a could be based purely on outcome, right? You're like, well, because these people who look like this or, or identify as this, uh, or are, I guess there's so many different categories, or are identified from the outside as this, um, occupy positions of quote unquote power. That would be outcome. And so outcome, all outcome tells us is divert, I would say statistically divergent outcome. All that tells us is, hey, something's going on here. And I would agree that that's a, something that we should go ahead and inspect. I think to me with intersectionality, maybe we can move into this next. I, my sense, this is just intuition, is that it leapfrogs from uh, cause to causation. But it's like the cause has to be this. It has to be that the people in power are trying to keep power away from these people, whoever these people might be or whatever consciously or subconsciously and this is the danger of subconscious because it's like well they don't even know it okay well how do you know it if they don't know it, how do you know it like we have to and then we so, so that's the thing i'm constantly curious about because as soon as you start introducing marginalized then you'd have to be like oh, okay well wait so to some degree either either that just means advantage or disadvantaged like if they use that language i think i'd be more comfortable with it um to some to some degree it depends on the category but like abled and less abled i was like there's advantages and disadvantages here but even the very i don't know this is the gosh this leaves me the other questioning it leaves me the other paradigm of like um like what success markers of outcome like what even outcomes are we observing and are those outcomes genuine or colonial is the thing i've constantly been examining right are they outcomes related to income 
well, who cares about income? Do you flip and love capitalism so much that you think the people who make the most money are the, the best off? Fie upon you. I despise that. You know what I mean? It's, that's an argument. Or people are like, well, their test, their literacy, their maternal death rates. There's all sorts of things that I think, again, because I'm pro-colonial, not, not exhaustively or exclusively, but I'm open to it. But from a colonial point of view, that's all like, if, if a particular group tends towards certain outcomes, it may be because they like those flipping outcomes. It's possible, right? That's always a tenable theory. So if someone is marginalized, they also might like being marginalized. They might like having their life super hard. I, I have certain tendencies. I've done many things throughout my life that specifically damage me and I kind of like it. And so we have this constant thing of like, that, but you've invited an excellent concept, which is then what is our responsibility? And now virtue must be freely chosen, right? We've kind of discussed that a bunch of times. So it can't, it, is it, but is it an ethical moral obligation for us to keep our eyes out for those of us who are, who are struggling? And I would say generally, in a general macro zoom out sense, I'd say, yes, absolutely. And that's why I, again, I, I dig intersectionality as a concept, just because it's like, I feel like this is someone's attempt to try to figure out how to do that. Can we look at the, do you have any example of like, it might not even be called the intersectional wheel, <laughs> but like, cause I know I've looked up intersectional wheel and it actually talks about all the complicated dynamics of what constitute power. And I was like, okay, that's too complicated. But I was thinking this in terms of like how you could almost, this is the way I see it the most, but it's also probably the, the most uh, like Buzzfeed quiz. Hey, what's your intersectionality score? I think that would be an interesting thing to examine and kind of break down what that, like, what does it mean? Because I've always seen it as like, yeah, the, the trivial pursuit thing or the thing, the, the like the circle with different colors. And then on each color are the deconstructed elements, which can overlap, uh, which can intersect. Um, so like, yeah, what's what's a good what's a good one to pick that's like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, at least questionable. I can pull it up. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier from Sylvia Duckworth. Uh, she calls it the wheel of power and privilege. Okay, there you go. It's very slowly coming up. Um, well, that's coming up. There's one thing you reminded me of, which is I one thing I appreciate that you've helped me look at it myself is is my own use of hyperbolic and absolute language. Um, it, it, it is quite common in a lot of these conversations to just be like, well, all 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 of this class of people or whatever, and all of this class <laughs> of people or whatever. And yeah, yeah. I just am not i'm I'm backing away from that a bit hopefully in my own language and then i'm i'm, I'm noticing that more um because it can be a way to uh well it's almost like you're supporting the idea of nuance i know that's not true but um, no 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 i would just say people who, who tend towards absolutes such as i've done it myself uh would tend to be um i think it's really just a form of uh laziness and or having run out of spoons, in which case you just go, I'm just going to say this thing. It's not even true, but I just, I don't have the energy to properly formulate the sentence. And I think people do it all the time. And I would say all the time in the absolute sense, but I just mean it's going to occur many times a day if you interact with human beings. I've done it. I think everyone listening has done it at some point. And I have kids who are now literalists because I'm a literalist and I've raised them as such. And they challenge me, always, dad, we always do that. We we always complain. I hear you <laughs> saying all people do that all the time. Is that that's what I'm saying? Everybody does it all the time, continually. There's no time they don't do it. I'm just going to do another clap, so hopefully it'll be easy to see on the timeline. So yeah, let's look at the 
an example, like from the power, what is it, power and privilege wheel? You know, there's a bunch of these. I like, I've liked yeah. this one. I think this particular publication was late 2020. Um, but I think, <clears throat> uh, so you can find Sylvia Duckworth pretty easily on mm -hmm. Instagram. And let's try to remember maybe to publish this. And I have a link to the, the most official version of this, which is on Flickr. Um, <laughs> Here, uh, but I my understanding is she actually this is an updated one because some of the language even around neuro um, typical and neuro atypical um, was updated and I don't I can't remember what the what the other one was but it, it's gotcha. a, a thing there around the language where we were often we're actually um, I don't forget the terminology exactly right but we're often using language that still is centering kind of a quote unquote normal condition and then like your proximity or or like starting from that norm and then the condition is then um how how much you're diverging from from the norm um, yeah. you know which in some cases just well maybe always like it just centers the idea of normality in a way that i hope some of this some of the outcome of this work as we keep kind of referring to the eight billion <laughs> is that we are kind of drifting away from the idea of normal uh like a homogenized norm uh which is i, I think one of the goal, goals of, of coloniality but anyway i drift away as usual so this what i like about this presentation and like because i don't know if we'll ever share this video so hopefully somebody can look this up or we'll share the link but i will also describe it since this is audio um, we're looking at the Wheel of Power and Privilege from Sylvia Duckworth. It's a it's a rainbow um, wheel. Uh, it looks if, if if people get the Trivial Pursuit reference, it looks a lot like that. Basically, there are uh, three rings of shaded areas, and each kind of uh, wedge on the wheel coming out from the center is a different color. Um, and then so the idea, and then in the very middle of the wheel it says power, and on the outer uh, edge it says marginal marginalized and this is what i do like about the word marginalized so I'm, I'm with you advantaged and disadvantaged i think is totally fair game often often privilege is described as unearned advantage um what i like about the term marginalized though especially in this presentation is that it's visual right it reminds <laughs> us yeah. that like, the people we forget about the conditions we forget about that or maybe we never knew about like it, it, it's just a constantly trying to remind us, I think, just to, to ask the question of like, who's out there? <laughs> who's out there on the margins that, you know, to what you said a second ago, do we have a responsibility to to constantly be asking ourselves as a as a society and as a culture, like, are we tending mm -hmm. to um and and then you know, the other part of this is about who makes decisions, right? So that's a lot of the idea of the power. Um, you know, and so one one maybe evolutionary step would be, well, let's get the people in power to at least give a shit about the people on the margins. That's not really, I think, the ultimate <laughs> solution. It's more how do we <laughs> actually redistribute and rethink, you know, how, how power works in terms of decision making. Um, and that's a whole other universe. But uh, hmm. so would it be helpful for it just to go around the wheel in the different categories? Not like every single piece of this, but just the categories. Yeah. Yeah, so, the main categories. Yeah. Um, so starting with, you know, it's actually, it's also interesting, right? So I'm actually going to, so race and gender to me to, to tend to be the things that, that we focus on the most. Well, somewhat, the somewhat invention, different. yeah. 
somewhat detrimentally. I mean, I think that's that's to me one of the values of this presentation is that mm -hmm. it it helps me just remember all of these different um, identity markers um, to, to even just have a conversation about them. I mean, I think that's how we even started some of those conversations a couple of years ago was just like, hey, let's look at this and <laughs> let's just <laughs> yeah, let's just break this down. What is this? Yeah, there was one, actually there's one really cool exercise where you can just um, some people call it like stringing stringing the beads but you just go around you know if you're actually in a circle grade or if you're on zoom you just kind of pick an order and then and then people just name an identity and you just go around a few times and it what i love uh and actually we've done this in some of the surveying we've done with for the field real community is like when people can really name their own identities and not choose like this is kind of a multiple choice thing right yeah yeah right yeah here. it's like well here are the categories like whatever we've we've said to almost to death <laughs> that, that that's a limiting factor which of course it is yeah. um it's really really amazing to to hear how people like name their identities when they're not given categories because like yes. really surprising things come out um and and that exercise is a really good one and, and what happens we can call this like spiraling in a good way <laughs> like we go around the circle maybe three maybe four maybe five times and then you start to hear people mention identities, you know, like being a father is an identity or playing the guitar is a kind of identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That aren't remotely contained on this wheel. I don't I don't think we have parenthood on here. Yeah, so yeah. I, well, I know it's funny to think about this is but this is also I'm going to speak to this briefly. This is a harm of intersectional thought, which is the spiraling that both of us have gone through on this program, where you then, the, the rhetorical need to add so many uh, caveats, which both of us do. And I think both of us speak that very naturally. So in some ways, that's the attraction to this sort of style of thinking. But it was it is hilarious to me because I'm looking at this wheel right now. It's three categories per category. There's like 12 or 13 categories. And you were like, no, of course, this isn't very representational. And you're like, this is so, like, it's hilarious how representational it is as something to just like, well, let's just, because we're just like, let's look at kind of a basic breakdown. And the basic breakdown is whatever, what is it? Three times 12. 12. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah. okay. So it's like, so it's four, three times 12, 30, there's 36 there's already 36 areas, areas of identity that have been uh, laid upon the spectrum. Um, so it is pretty funny that you're like, yes, this doesn't represent infinity, but in terms of like doing something super simply, this is already way, it's it's heading towards, it's heading way, way towards infinity. Uh, it's just, so it's just fun. I don't know. I just think that's, yep. that's uh, amusing. I do too. It's, it's yeah. just, I think we both hold that paradox. Um, it's very so funny. To finally go actually go around the wheel. I'm yeah. actually horrible job of being inclusive in terms of anybody who um well everybody on this show is uh vision challenged because we don't offer the video yet yeah <laughs> but maybe we'll be able to do that however anybody who could look it up maybe be looking at it that's great but then if if somebody was um vision challenged then uh i'm doing a piss poor job <laughs> describing this yes. so we're back so. to the rainbow wheel there's a rainbow wheel Back to the rainbow wheel, the wheel of power and privilege. And then I'm just going to read through the 12 dimensions of it. So skin color, which I do want to point out, you know, on this show, we've, we've, we've mutually decided to use the term melanated. Uh, so I do, I do find it interesting that she chose skin color versus uh, race as an mm -hmm. example. Yeah. Um, formal education, ability, which I've spoken to a bit, sexuality, uh, you know, and, and 
just to make sure we distinguish that from gender, that's about who, who are you attracted to sexually. Uh, neurodiversity, which would include categories like ADHD or being on the spectrum as it's often said, or even as I was saying, like being highly sensitive person in terms of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, mental health, which that one's intriguing because I, I postulate that everybody's mental health has been compromised in the last couple of years, especially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, body size, a very, I actually explore that quite a bit in this article because I, I'm a large, I consider myself a large white man. I mean, I'm technically overweight, maybe borderline obese, um, especially right now. I'm, I'm not in the greatest condition that way. And it's fascinating because, okay, okay, I'm going to go around the whole wheel and then I'll come back. <laughs> so, uh, housing, so a lot of my work actually here in Chicago is around, um, you know, houseless folks. So that's near to my heart. Uh, wealth, which a lot of folks, and I'm, I don't think this is a, a totally untenable argument <laughs> that like most things actually come more down to economic structures or, or but obviously they all, inter they are, I don't know, is it obvious? I think it's obvious they intersect. Uh, language, right? Like, mm -hmm. are, are you a native speaker? Uh, like, you know, here, let's say in the United States where we speak English as the primary language, like, and what is that? How does that intersect with um, how you move through the world? Gender, hmm. uh, and this is, I think we're gonna have a whole other conversation about, you know, gender and sex and, um, but this is really getting at your chosen gender. Like, are you, um, do you align with maybe the, you know, sexual parts you were you were born with, so to speak, or, or are you choosing a, a gender otherwise, or is there something non non binary, or even something beyond all of that? Mm -hmm. And then and then citizenship. You know, are you documented or mm -hmm. not? And, so, and then I just wanted to briefly come back to body size because I you know it's something I'm uh, it's a vulnerability for me. It's a it's a something I'm fairly insecure about, um, and also something I recognize that I have a, power, a lot of power to change. I mean, I, I'm tall, uh, relatively tall, not so much next to my friend. <laughs> no one. Yeah, almost nobody is. Yeah. And, and the funny thing with this, that I'll just use this one example around my identity as a, as a you know, fairly tall white man in America. Most people would consider that powerful. Um, and, and in terms of the most, I think, obvious form of power, which is physical prowess and the ability to o literally overpower somebody physically, unless yeah. they were a brilliant martial artist or something. Um, yeah, I actually do have a lot of power there being a, in a large body. Now in this, what I'm pointing out here is that in this um, scale, slim is in the middle. Slim is in the power, whereas large, large body is the margins. Hmm. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's some kind of it's almost like what you said, like, I, I take it on myself that, that, uh, you know, I could, I could um, lose some weight, and I have at different times in my life, and that's really well documented, too. Uh, but it's just fascinating, because I'm just, to me, this was the intersection I, that kind of spun me out the most, because I was like, yeah, but is that quite right? What she's getting at here, and it might be, might be more true, generally, for women than men, I don't know, is that we have a, typical beauty standard of being really slim and that's yeah that's amplified to the point of being like photoshopped right like like the, sure like, yeah models of things being made extra slim and barbie dolls and all of that so yeah although we're actually in a time period now where butt implants pec implants 
actually chasing largerness is what is being also paid for. Like literally people are spending money to try to make themselves larger. So. Well, then I'm ahead of that uh, trend. Yeah, so yeah, you're like, and I'm doing it natural, baby. All natural add-ons. Well, this, okay, so this is interesting. So, if, okay, we've laid out the basic structure. You can kind of at least visualize what this would be like. If you've seen these before, just look it up. Google it while you're listening to this program. Wheel of Power and Privilege. Sylvia Duckworth, as long as you're a person who can, um, who has access to the internet uh, and can uh, and can read. Um, so, I would say, as someone who's very skeptical about the whole intersectional. Uh, version two or 3.0, whichever that one this is, that if you took the word power, which is at the center of the uh, wheel, and if you took marginalized out of it, I don't know if anyone would have a problem with this circle. I'm trying to say that slowly. I'm looking around it to be, be careful. I think Just people would still have, take, yep. Here, th these are, these are, yeah, exactly. These are sort of spectrums of different types of identity. People would look at this and go, well, I'm sure I have some problems with it. Um, and this is, again, and this is like when you go to take a test and you're like, which, um, oh, what's a good example? Like, which euphoria character are you, <laughs> right? And you answer a bunch of questions and it shows you where, like, where you are, which euphoria character, which friends character are you or whatever, right? And you're like, oh, gosh, I am. I'm such a Monica. So if you looked at it in that way, you're like, oh, okay, these are somewhat useful. Uh, you would, you still could very easily question, are any of these identities useful for us to consider? Some of them are, and you might disagree from, from spoke to spoke, whether we should even be talking about such a thing. I do have to, so I think that's an important thing to say off the bat, whereas I'm like, if you took marginalized and power out of there, um, I'm like, oh, okay, this the graph makes perfect sense to me. I Not perfect sense, but it makes, Com a, a common enough sense. When you add power and marginalize, all of a sudden this diagram gets so confusing to my brain. And mm. so I'm, I'm glad I have you to walk me through it. And I would need, if anyone ever brought this up, I'd be like, we cannot continue. You cannot just move on from this. You can't, if you go to next slide, I'm going to have to leave the room because I, my brain can't. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm too much of an overthinker perhaps, or a, I'm going to go ahead and give myself some credit. I'm a complex thinker. So I can't just go, oh, okay, yep, I get it, and move on. That's not how my brain works. Um, so what's very interesting to me, body size is a good thing. Maybe we can even use that as, let's like break down a couple of the spokes and kind of maybe look at it in microcosm and maybe it'll help us understand this. Um, is, is there one of these that might be, might feel the least controversial to you? Like, uh, Oh, the least, yes. The least controversial to me, if you put power and marginalize back in the diagram, um, well, actually, sorry, before I even say that, there's one thing that I think is, let me, I can't decide whether I want to call it crazy or spazzy. It is super spazzy that um, I've heard that word is banned. So I'm going to use it as often as possible. Um, or, you know, this is another thing that I think is just like a, become a generic bad term. This, there's something very white supremacist about the fact that um, there is no uh, spoke for what uh, Crenshaw would call gender or what we as a society call gender, which is also biological sex, gender kind of interchange used use synonymously throughout most of human history. Um, there's no spoke for, for sex, for biological sex. And that's weird to me because when Crenshaw invented it, it would literally was race and, and uh, gender slash sex. And so there's no man or woman here really. 
in terms of like, it's just, it's self-identity. So that's fascinating to me. And I'll be like, Miss Duckworth, Mrs. Duckworth, I have some questions. That is super strange. I don't understand that's in there. But that might be for another episode when we redesign the Wheel of Power and Privilege, because there's a whole bunch of categories here that I can't understand why they wouldn't be here as opposed to ones that are here. But the one I disagree with the least <laughs> or have the least questions about <clears throat> is in as much as this speaks towards uh, not, uh, there's nothing absolute about it. Like if you're rich, you're not absolutely or inherently or inevitably uh allowed or have greater access to power. And so that's helpful, but I'm looking at wealth, poor, middle-class, rich. Once you get to rich, you're the closest to power. I would say if that is speaking to, and maybe this is questioning what this wheel is doing, if that's speaking to statistical um, likelihood, then yes, I would say if you are considered rich or wealthy, it would be statistically more likely that you would have ac greater access to power than someone who's poor. But that would, but that certainly isn't any sort of absolute. But that's the closest one to something that I'm like. I think that's pretty legit. That if you're poor, you have less access to power. Meaning, uh, if if what we're talking about is power is sort of like social or legislative power. I don't. That's also the question. I don't know what we're talking about. So let's just look at it in terms of poor wealth, because um, it's all in the same graph. So once we establish what wealth is talking about, that would then theoretically establish what all of these things are talking about. So as you see that one, do you see that one as the most like unassailable, like the most like least e easy to argue, or do you see a different yeah, one? I, that's yeah. And, and again, like a lot of people kind of even want to bypass talking about some of these other identities to, and just say, look, uh, a poor black person in Chicago might have as little power as a poor white person in a rural area somewhere right so right yeah urban wealth, yeah urban yeah wealth could um yeah i think align us in that way i don't know for some reason my my mind goes to citizenship just mm -hmm. being literally connected in terms of documentation and the mm -hmm. very real constant fear of being deported and like you know that one stands out as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I would say, well, yeah, and then, and that, but that might be similar too to wealth and power. So, as long as that's in your top two, we can do wealth and power. Um, sorry, wealth, uh, yeah, wealth and power, uh, poor, middle class, rich. <clears throat> what does power, what kind of power is this talking about in relation to this slice of the pie? Like, in you, from your understanding, as opposed to me trying to put mine on it and, and then asking you if it's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to try to connect it to some framework we use somewhat consistently, uh, I'm <clears throat> the dignity and agency piece, you know, to me, power is agency. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, one of my mentors said, well, look, in power, in physics, power means the ability to move something, right? Yeah. So I think that's fair game. Uh, and I think that's, we're not necessarily always talking about physical or, uh, you know, because it could be a law that, like, do we, do people have access to change the laws? And the the you know that since we live, um, you know, in a in a country where corporations have a massive amount of influence on our politics, to me, like yes, wealth you know could be connected to power in in that way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's what I was kind of looking at and sort of assuming as well that it would yeah, have to do with uh, yeah. potentially like legislative. Or, but even in legislative, like, so th then this is about sort of legislation and kind of law and policy making. Is the whole, okay, so then is, okay, sorry, no, let's, let's stay here. I don't want to keep zooming out. Let's stay okay, zoom, it zoom interpersonal. Down. It could be like, I'm wealthy enough to have 
of an armed entourage and <laughs> like you know we're, we're gonna just literally go terrorize uh houseless people or something i, I don't know if that's an mm -hmm. extreme but, sure know. sure yeah 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 but like so it's i'm still trying to figure it out so you're if you're rich especially as the opposite of poor here you have greater access to power so rich people have less access generally to community power because i would say rich people tend to live uh sequestered from larger groups of people but i could be incorrect about that um meaning like a poor person i think more often would have greater access to community rapidly you know what i mean i think of this like especially in terms of like there are and there are just simply less of them so if these are about groups that identify uh, if if you're identified with that group, you then are part of that tribe, essentially. So that would mean poor people are have more power by virtue of there are more of them. So if it's a if it's in any way, if this wheel is allowed for people to be like all poor people are essentially sort of bonded by some common identity here, then there are certainly more of them. So then this wheel of power privilege can't be speaking about generally um, uh, statistical uh statistical majority right or so it can't really be speaking about physical power of these individual people but instead it's access to alter the world around them but in what ways man this is yeah this is why my goodness gracious this is complex this is why even just the single one which i think is the least disagreeable is yeah. like, well, in what way? Because in what way? And then rich people, it's so funny, the body size one, large being on the outside. I mean, you look at our, look at Donald Trump or whatever, right? There's a rich person. Uh, we don't, most, most people don't like how he used his access to power. Uh, he certainly owned property. Uh, he's full on obese. Um, and so I actually tend to think of like rich people being like more ten, more likely to be fat. I actually think of Poor people and rich people is more likely to be fat and the middle class is more likely to be slim. Interestingly enough, um, that's my sort of intersectional assumption. And I would say generally throughout human history, like if you were able to become fat, you are, you're probably quite wealthy because that would be a pretty rare, that would be a rare advantage. Um, but okay, but in terms of political power, rich people have less political power by virtue of their vote if they're a group because they have less people. But I would certainly say due to, corporate influence in the United States of America, I can certainly see how that would be more powerful. So their access to those who actually have power, I guess that's the interesting thing because power is in the middle and it's connected to stuff, but it's separate from all of these categories. So heterosexual people don't explicitly have power, but they have access to power. Rich people don't explicitly or implicitly have power, they have access to power. And that starts to make more sense to me because this is always my difficulty. I was like, every person, whether you're poor, middle class, or rich, you have the same essential power within yourself. Like you have the power to make decisions. You have the power to like whether to go try to kill somebody or not. Like if if, if someone's sleeping and you have access to them, <laughs> you pretty much all have the same power until we're getting into elements of like physical strength and that sort of stuff, in which case body size becomes very important. Um, okay. But yeah, I'm still just trying to figure it out. It's still very confusing, but I I still think I mostly mostly agree with it i don't know well i, I appreciate the opportunity to, to to pick it apart and uh you know it's like that thing you don't know something until until you teach it um 
if 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 I'm in that role in some way. <laughs> yeah. So credentialed, uh, but I do need to uh, bring us to a close so I can go have dinner with my papa. Um, oh, lovely. And uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe we do a part two where we just <laughs> really dig into every every single one of these dimensions on the wheel. It's fascinating. It's very very fascinating. Um, so yeah, I would invite anyone to, uh, again, if you haven't looked this up yet, um, look it up, take a look and then, yeah, maybe let's have a, let's have a further conversation about it. Cause I'm really, uh, that once we get to this ding dang wheel, like this, the wheel of power privilege is fascinating to me. And I, um, and I just, and the cool thing is I, I don't go uh, fascinating. I don't like it. <laughs> uh, I would love to know more and I'd love to explore more with you. So I enjoy getting to explore up until this point today already. As do I. I love you. I, will I love talk you. To you.